0: There were a lot of points throughout this book that I had, like, moments of, like, you know, kind of recognition or of seeing, like, this is, like, a quilting point for for preoccupations that I've had in other ways, and but I haven't always seen brought together. But there was this moment at the end of the book where I was, like, oh, I I do this in the classroom and, like— it always is is one of those moments where people walk away, and it's the the, the question of what does it mean to have a body versus what, is, what mm-hmm. does it mean to be a body? and I loved that that was in the end because it's been it's been set up in so many ways throughout the entirety of the book, but then it just like lands with this this sort of clarity i love I love that that was there, and I love that that you're really. Able to say, like, yeah, people should be able to have uh, bodily autonomy, but also the body is not a thing that we own.
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That was um, a tender thing to write about because it harkens back to my first class in graduate school, Mm -hmm. which was called uh, History of the Body. And that person became my advisor. and, And eventually we. We have no relationship now, so it's um, difficult to think about in a way, but I still think about a lot of the things that I learned in that class. And that was one of the central ones to think about bodies uh, in terms of capitalism, what it really means to think about owning a body and understanding that so much of the psyche in the United States really thinks about ownership in terms of um, bodies. In some ways, I thought that was kind of the most third rail thing (laughs) that I talked about. And the book came out. Yeah, yeah. I guess it came out two months after Dobbs, but of course, it had been turned in much longer before then. And I've actually been pleasantly surprised at how much people are talking much more about abortion now and not just choice.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: But seeing where we are with COVID now, I don't know how much the idea of bodily ownership has has been questioned broadly. It's been questioned by a lot of people. And I think that uh, the experience of COVID for the United States has helped such a broader percent of the population think about things that maybe only gay men had thought about, or maybe only uh, people in the disability community had thought about. So there's a lot broader consciousness. And I think that will bear fruit across generations. But we're also in a moment of real backlash where I think many of the lessons that were raised are just so being suppressed right now. Yeah. Uh,
2: It it seems like one of those things that is like the fact that we are bodies in addition to like existing in a culture that understands embodiment a logic of property is one of those things that's so like radical and like profoundly obvious in some way that of course there has to be this giant countervailing cultural pressure to to neutralize that. And I, I think about how it, in, in your book, you, you navigate this very difficult sort of double walk wherein like, and, and here I'm thinking about, you know, one of the ways in which this type of consciousness actually is neutralized, right? The way people will talk about like bodies and spaces as like a, a short-term phrase to like. uh De- de- delegitimized theory can't, right? Like we're all just bodies being traversed by FX, moving through spaces, like, et cetera, et cetera. And like this is like, you know, a leftist parodic kind of like Argo. But, but also we very much are bodies. And it it seems like, you know, to be able to do the two things at once, namely be like, well, people have individual agency, they have interiority, they have desires and things that are not reducible to simply talking about them as like, you know, animated meat but also when it comes to things like the spread of pathogens or the confinement of people into like abandoned zones or, or spaces of social neglect, or the fact that people do things like have sex with one another and engage in all sorts of like transfers of, of fluids and, and, and feelings and viruses, you know, as you say, 380 trillion of them, right? Or whatever the number is in our bodies. It, to be able to do both those things at once while also pointing to like the foreclosures of choice yeah, And the vulnerabilities mm-hmm. of the body seems like that requires going against so much normalized sort of like commonsensical or at least like, uh, you know, commonsensical not like the Gramsci sense like this is what is we're taught to think of things reflexively. And when something someone asks us to think about things against those terms, we we either dismiss it as just verbiage or sort of marginalize it in some other way. And I think you pull it off in the book, which is remarkable.
1: Thank you. I, I was thinking, as you we were just talking, about um, Alice Wong, who I think is one of the great philosophers of our time. Mm. And her memoir that came out, I think, a, a few months after my book, Year of the Tiger, is phenomenal. and She's she's edited and is currently editing a number of great um, anthologies with a variety of uh, thinkers around disability in different ways. And I don't think I use this phrase in the book, but it's something she's she uses a lot is to talk about mind-body, to think about you know, why do we say I have a mind or I have a body and to really think about mind-body as as one thing, that mm-hmm. we are bodies, we are minds, these are inseparable from one another. And yet they're so often talked about as very different. And hearing you talk right now, I think one of the things I was trying to work through in the book is how our sense of separation from one another is somewhat affection, but also so is the separation that we make between our mind and our bodies. And why do we pull apart those constituent parts and try to see them as parts and not think about them in terms of the whole? Because so much uh, discourse around disability and ableism is rooted in thinking of, thinking about what if I had a, you know, quote unquote, perfect body and yeah. my imperfect body is holding me back mm-hmm. and. Alice and others I've seen, you know, have written about particularly when people like Stephen Hawking will die. There will be a discourse around, oh, he was, you know, finally freed from the confines of his wheelchair and you're both wearing glasses. And as we're talking on, on Zoom and generally, you know, we don't say people are like confined by their glasses. Glasses are something that help them to see or contacts are something that help them to see. Um, and yet, that discourse very much is around wheelchairs and, and issues of mobility. Yeah. And I think that that thinking back to this this first class I took in graduate school is part of Fordist capitalism, right? The way that Fordism um, separated the functions of our bodies into very, very specific tasks that only one person yeah. could know, and other people on the assembly line couldn't know. The ways that you know a a farmer would know how to grow their own food, or a cobbler would know how to make their own shoes. Uh, and yet somebody working on the Nike assembly line will only know how to make a shoelace and will not have access right. to the equipment to actually make their own shoes. And I think that Fordist capitalism in our bodies really made us see the different parts of ourselves as uh, separable from each other. Yeah. yeah, And that, I think, is a not great mindset to come into something like an infectious disease pandemic.
0: Yeah. And not even just separable, but like separate. Right, right. Yeah, this, is, this seems to. I, what I'm thinking about. Uh, my, my
2: impulse here is is to just to, to to gloss something for our audience, right? Who who may be sort of wanting to us uh, to front a certain, maybe like put this in psychoanalytic terms, or like at least allude to it in some way. And I think in some ways, it's maybe it's almost too obvious for me to say this, right? But what you were just describing about Fordism or these processes of alienation that come from political economic changes in the workplace and in material culture and in the production of of widgets or, or God knows what those are mirrored and ramify in how we understand ourselves ideologically and how we sort of unconsciously operate and identify others or work with others. And part of what I think is so uh, powerful about your book and and about what I'm really excited to talk to you about today is, is the way in which there does appear to be both rapprochement, but then like willful disjunction or disavowal of the ways in which, um, these categories of you know our vulnerability or of our relationship to one another get separated, and and I was thinking through the many the different vectors that you talk about as, as, as you describe like the ways in which the what we call what you call the the, uh, the viral underclass is marginalized, whether it be like blaming or others or or the myths of immunity, et cetera, which we'll get into all of them. I, I found myself thinking about them as kind of like social defense mechanisms, yeah, right, A, as mm-hmm. ways in which. A certain reality is not only justified, but also perpetuated and presented as being the only way that things can be. And so it's not just material, it's psychic at the same time. And that just seems to be like a a fundamental problem of of capitalism and that's brought to to a particular type of head in this epidemic, right? And in the the making of an epidemic, I I guess, endemic. And and also just to to fully put this on the table, what I hear here too is, is a are shades of packaging what might be like the ultimate defense mechanism or the ultimate thing that leads us to uh, to certain types of denial and which capitalism in particular militates against, namely the fact that we're going to die, right? That ability is mm-hmm. a temporary condition. And and that wonderful line that you have in your conversation with um, Alice Wong, right? So many people are just in denial about the realities that we're all going to die, that it can happen to any of us. This seems to be a very basic problem, which COVID sort of serves up to us and which we can either think about or continue to not think about but either way that's going to take work
0: to Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin. I'm
2: uh, Patrick Weinfield.
0: And today, I'm really delighted to welcome our guest, Stephen Thrasher, who holds the Daniel Renberg Chair at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. Uh, The first journalism professorship in the world to focus on LGBTQ research. He's also a faculty member at Northwestern's Institute of Sexual and Gender Minority Health and Well-Being. His critically acclaimed debut book, The Viral Underclass, won the Paws Award for Best in Literature, was named one of the Best Books of the Year by Kirkus Reviews, and was a long-list finalist for both the Andrew Carnegie Medal in Nonfiction and the Pan-America John Kenneth Galbraith Award for Excellence in Nonfiction Literature. It is a fucking phenomenal book, um, and uh, we are so excited to get into it. Oh, I should also say, Stephen is a certified phlebotomist, which we might also get into. Yeah. He lives in Chicago. Uh, Stephen, welcome to Ordinary Happiness. Thank you so much for being here.
1: It's a real honor to be here with both of you. Thank you so much for having me.
2: I just want to second anyone listening just to go buy this book, but also if, if you know physical books are not necessarily how people roll, uh, the audiobook, which, which you yourself recorded, uh, sounds great and, and just is a, a wonderful listen. Uh, so for people who want to take advantage of that, please, like I want to plug this. You have a marvelous voice, which is another added benefit to having you on now.
1: Oh, thank you. That was a, uh, I, I worked in radio many years ago and, um, I'm glad that I read the book. It was, and everyone told me who's done it, it was a lot of work and it was a real mind body experience (laughs) I'm Uh, to, um, as I'm sure you're learning as you do this podcast, um, when you speak for long periods of time, you learn that there are more muscles in your face than you were consciously (laughs) aware of.
0: (laughs) So Stephen, we like to ask all of our guests, um, you know, often like how they got into psychoanalysis if they are or how they came to do what they're doing in general. Um, And in your case, you've had this fantastically varied career, um, you know, from entertainment to journalism to academia. Um, And, you know, from Patrick's and my perspective, this is all combined to make you um, this really unique voice who can communicate complex ideas with just unparalleled clarity, which certainly shows up in the viral underclass. Um, All of which is by way of saying, can you tell us a little bit about? about yourself, how you got into the fields that you work in now, and what led you to write The Viral Underclass?
1: Certainly. And I'll try to be uh, as concise as I can because I have had a lot of different kinds of jobs. <laughs> as many writers have had um, and preparing for the podcast, I've been thinking about moments that it's overlapped with um, psychoanalysis. So I've always wanted to be a writer. And I grew up in Southern California. and My family told me i said I wanted to live in New York City from the time I could talk. Um, I don't know if that was a latent uh, uh, latent desire for homosexuality that I couldn't yet articulate, uh, but I always wanted to live in New York. And I uh, did theater and stuff in high school and worked in my um, high school newspaper. I never went to journalism school, but uh, I tried... Well, I never went to journalism school in university, but in high school, a couple of friends and I restarted our high school newspaper, The Buzz, And the teacher who um, oversaw it went out on sick leave after our first issue. And then the other two students and I like taught the class. We were 16. There was a substitute there, but they did nothing. Um, And so these other two 16-year-olds and I like ran the buzz. Amazing. And I loved writing. And I found out at some point that there was such a thing as film school and that people wrote movies. And so I decided I wanted to study screenwriting and um, playwriting in college and ended up going to. NYU, the first time in the 1990s. Um, and I studied film and writing. And during that time, I took a class called Modern Drama with a really great professor named um, Martin Epstein. And so that's where I first really encountered Freud. We were reading Ibsen and Chekhov, um, Strindberg, 20th century, mid 20th century playwrights. And we talked about Freud's influence and sometimes direct correspondence with some of these people and the influence that they had on one another. Also, in my film education, When I really started studying Hitchcock and um, film theory, a lot of that was drawing on psychoanalysis. Hitchcock himself and his collaborators were sometimes very directly involved with psychoanalytic conversations and and vertigo and psycho and things like that. And while I was in film school, I I interned at Saturday Night Live for a couple of years. That was my first job when I got out. I was a a very unglorious um, script assistant and, and writer's assistant and researcher on the weekend update desk. At a time, this makes me feel so old when there was only one internet connection in the office. Um, and so it was a lot of physical cutting and pasting. But particularly for all the, for all the writers I assisted, but particularly when we can update, journalism was always very close to it because we were putting together clip reels. And the years that I was there um, was during the Clinton impeachment. So it was mm-hmm. a lot of the Monica Lewinsky stories and putting together clip reels for Daryl Hammond, who was playing Clinton at the time. And I worked in film production in the beginning of my career. I worked for the filmmaker Todd Solons on The End of Happiness and on his movie Storytelling. And then I worked on a film called The Laramie Project about the killing of Matthew Shepard. And that was a film based on a play that had been a long series of oral histories that had been done uh, with the people of Laramie to try to understand the context in which the killing of Matthew Shepard happened. And that was really very formative, I think, to the kind of work that, that I still do And um, seeing and working for these writers who were taking a long time and talking to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I eventually and I've, I had all kinds of odd jobs. too. I've been a janitor, I've been a window washer, i worked as a secretary for a few years in, in a design firm. But eventually I ended up working for the NPR StoryCorps project. And that's where I felt like I stepped up a little bit more in terms of doing this kind of long form work myself, where StoryCorps, two people come in and, and ideally two people come in together and they interview each other. But often one person comes in and one of the facilitators interviews them. Um, and so I spent actually about a year interviewing about 500 people around the country. And all those interviews are an hour long. And to this day, if I even just need a one sentence uh, fact from somebody for a story, I have a hard time not talking to them for an hour, which is a very um, inefficient, economically inefficient way to you know conduct business as a journalist, but is often the way that you hear the line that that the thing is that you want to actually write about, or you find the next story, mm-hmm. and from there that that there was an emerging blogging technology. <laughs> At the time, while I was working for StoryCorps, and so I'd write the blog uh, when we were in different towns, and I started writing when local newspapers would want to interview us, I started asking them if I could write stories when we we're in different towns. Um, so that's kind of how I got into freelance writing. Eventually ended up being a feature writer for The Village Voice, um, probably the most fun job that I've ever had. Um, and in that, you know, I think getting to write these 3, four or 5,000 word features, we, we were blogging news stories at the same time too, but, um, a month, every month or so I was writing these longer features and I got to draw on these experiences that I'd had, um, in film school, in doing, uh, radio work and, and film work. And that really, I think affected the way that I write scenes and the way that I wrote stories and, yeah. and developed, um, a way to interview people. And uh, I really enjoyed doing that a great deal. Um, and of course, it didn't last forever because of the economics of uh, journalism. <laughs> the week after mm-hmm. I got my biggest award, I got laid off, mm-hmm. uh, along with a bunch of other people. And I'd been thinking about for a while the possibility of going to graduate school. Once I learned that paid that there were funded PhD programs that um, that people could do. Um, the only PhD in my family had been my, my sister who's now deceased. Her name was Sharon hmm. and she had done a psychology. She was a psychologist um, and she'd done her degree in the eighties and nineties and nothing like the conditions that I did at. She was not funded. She worked as a psychiatric technician in Boston from midnight to 8am, five nights a week. Um, and then would go to class in the mornings and sleep in the afternoons. And so she just had a very, very different experience but I do remember learning a bit about Freud from her, even though she was a uh, psychologist, not a psychiatrist. Um, and and particularly, she, she had cancer for 15 years. And um, so the specter of death was always uh, near with her and something that we talked about. And she faced it with a, a great amount of clarity. Um, and then I started going to uh, into my PhD program in American Studies, which draws on a lot of different traditions. I had a little bit of psychoanalysis in the English tradition, but I was probably a bit more social science oriented. But the very last class I took was with Anne Pellegrini, who was a really amazing performance studies scholar. Yeah. Um, and that was a class on, I think it was called Freud and morning or Freud and morning and melancholy. And every week we would read something by Freud and a contemporary piece um, by a contemporary writer or thinker. So we were reading um, Douglas Cramp, morning and melancholia uh, we read a lot of David Eng, um, uh, Alison Bechtel, we read Fun Home and, and writing about Fun Home. Um, and I now I'm teaching it. Actually, I start in a week. I'm teaching a class called Listening to the Dead uh, mm-hmm. to, for journalism students to teach them how to mm-hmm. think about how to write about death. Um, and so I think psychoanalysis has been a big part for me. It has played a big role in my life in terms of thinking about death, how we write about it, how we think about it. Yeah. We're reading Sherwin Newlands, How We Die in this class, which is a really, it's, he's an MD, and it's a really beautiful book about the physicality of death and mm-hmm. how you actually die in different ways, but it also deals with how we think about it. Um, and of course, this has been enormously important in AIDS history, which is a became a big part of my studies and the book I finally wrote, and I think in the formation of Queer Theory and Modern Gay Identity. Um, and of course, this has been much more broadly conceived by the humans of this planet over the past few years because of the coronavirus. Yeah,
2: it, it seems like one one immediate point of contact that I, I found myself thinking about as you as you describe this this kind of un- remarkable trajectory, but also just the the approach that you bring to the topics that you study in general is the way in which the example of death, right, which is both something individual that we're never going to experience in the sense that like you don't. It's the end of experience, right? We always have to encounter it in the third person, and then we encounter it in the first person, and nobody comes back to talk about it, right? It has this paradoxical character, but it's also this social phenomena, and and particularly in the mode of uh, epidemics, whether they be widespread or are confined to certain communities, it's a it's an ongoing event that keeps happening, and in either way, the individual in their thought, but also the, the socius as a collectivity that's more than just individuals has to metabolize or work through the ongoing fact of death, but also specific deaths. Yeah, And this work of mourning or of forgetting or of turning to fantasies of, I don't know, like being the billionaire who lives forever or whatever, all represent different ways of either failing to do that or deferring that or, or sort of distortedly doing that. And, and something about that, a uh, functional process of either encountering death or perpetuating death or forgetting about death or some, doing some combination thereof seems so very, well, it, it's one of those things that much like death itself is is much more present to certain communities that, of, that are abjected, that are left to, yeah. uh, you know, suffer and die, but then also collectively can become nearer through things like COVID. And then the question is, where does that leave, quote unquote, everybody stipulating that certain people were already on the front lines much more to begin with?
0: yeah. I want to get in. I I want to not defer endlessly as we often have a problem doing on this podcast because we go (laughs) on, like we get really interested in whatever we're talking about. It's a good problem to have. So I want to get into the book, but I also want to say, just kind of thinking about um, your narrative, your, your trajectory and Patrick's thoughts on it and circling back to what you were talking about before about you know, sort of like thinking about like the problem of mind-body, <laughs> rather than uh, you know, or, or understanding that um, is that you know, in 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 my field, which is philosophy, there's like this famous line from from Plato, or it's you know, Socrates says it, or it's that philosophy is preparation for death, and the idea is that in fact, as we get older and closer to death, we get less embodied we get closer and closer to being pure spirit, pure soul. And one of the things that I really admire about the viral underclass is how it takes the absolute opposite tack, right? It is about getting into the messiness and like the mutual imbrication of the actual confrontation with death as opposed to the disavowal of it through the root of not only our individual bodies, but like the ways that our bodies are always kind of one body you're talking about at the very end of the book, you know, the body politic, which is both a singular entity, but also like relentlessly plural.
1: Yeah. My, my mind is buzzing with all the things that you've, you've brought up. Um, It's interesting hearing you know, when you work on a book for so long, and I'm sorry I did not actually tee up how I, how I came to write this book. Which That's okay. Is to okay. Talk That's okay. About. We have a lot of questions. Um, but but we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, but in the first, this first class I was telling you about earlier that I took in graduate school called a history of the body. I think the in the first week we were sent five readings before the class began and had to write, you know, for the first day, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was very cruel at the time. But I do it to my students now, <laughs> well, especially <laughs> especially being in a quarter system where we don't have that much time. Um, but one of them was this uh, essay, "The End of the Body" by Emily Martin. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. and yeah. trying to take seriously. These ideas rooted in critical theory of, of life being a social construction and death being a social construction. Um, and as you were saying, Patrick, the, you know, the idea of death, if I think it's easier for people to understand we socialize one another into the lives that we lead, that the lives that we have are dependent upon seeing one another. It's very, very clearly and I think quite brilliantly articulated in Greta Gerwig's Barbie, where it can only exist in the gaze of another. Um, and that I think is an easier thing to think about than death is socially constructed because as Patrick pointed out, you're not there anymore once you're dead. Um, but so much (laughs) of like the experience of death is about the mourning practices and the way that the living no longer have the absence of the person for the living is very much how we, um, construct death and, and Emily Martin's End of the Body, she's talking about how AIDS was a threat to the general population in the United States or a perceived threat that went beyond its actual threat. The threat of AIDS in its early days was really... Um, And and now it's still very much concentrated in for all kinds of reasons I articulate in the book. And it's not to say that other people don't have risk, but it's very concentrated in particular populations Uh, in the early years. uh, amongst people who use injection drugs, but almost entirely or very, very, very much in the early years amongst men who had sex with men in the United States. And that threat was perceived very broadly in the U.S. for people who were not at a particularly high risk. And Martin argues that the fear of the risk is is connected, uh, you know, it's connected to the sexual nature, but it's also really about how what these men are doing is an infection that could infect American workers. And it's in a population, a very specific population of gay men who are not attached to the heteronormative family and they are living in cities as renters with rent control, which is like outside the purview of most American politics, which were really driven around the heteronormative family and the man of the house having the breadwinning job uh, that required having a 30-year mortgage. And then once you're in that, there's very you have very few moves you can do politically <laughs> once you're in that trap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now you had these people who are in a very, very different social footing, who had an immediate sense of danger and no reason not to act as radically as they wanted to because this particular virus. Um, was quite unusual in that it was affecting people who were pretty young, mm. you know, who did not want to, do not want to give up living. Um, and unlike something like COVID, where it's primarily affecting, and I'm saying they don't want to live, but it's primarily was, and still is at this moment, as we speak, affecting most elderly people in nursing homes who are quite out of view and who have limited bodily power and limited bodily ability. But HIV was affecting these men in their twenties and thirties, and then giving them, once at the time they knew they had it, two, three, four, five, ten years of time before they're actually going to die. And so they had all this impetus to act politically, radically. Um, and Martin argues that that's the infection that was really causing a crisis with within Reagan America that that they were going to infect other workers. Um, as I think as I think if I were the ruling class right now, I would tell the I would tell the the uh, the motion picture studios to like figure their shit out and get those workers back to work before before they let them you know they, before they let the most famous people in the world infect uh, other workers with ideas about the conditions of their labor. <laughs> Um, and I think that, you know, Martin's arguing that that was a real fear of what was happening with AIDS and it's creating notions of the idea of what is the end of the body. Um, and part of the body that she's writing about is the Fortis body. That's very separate. That's very separated. And that there could be wholeness or a sense of, um, a sense of wanting to desire wholeness again through the reaction the politics that were rising in AIDS. And I think that was very, very informative to me as I went through my PhD and as I began reporting on the story of Michael Johnson that became the basis of my dissertation eventually, the book, The Viral Underclass.
0: So let's let's get into let's get into the viral underclass and to the story of of Michael Johnson particularly. I mean one of the things that that Patrick and I have been talking about as, you know, as we've been reading your book at the at the same time, is, is how it does just this incredible job of relating how viral epidemics are never just about viruses, right? Um, but the crises that they produce reveal these long-standing hierarchies of vulnerability and disposability in the societies in which they spread. Um, and the ways in which individuals navigate risks of viral exposure um, and talk or, or, or imagine um, viruses, they're never just these sort of, like, objective or scientific things. They reflect a whole network of anxieties, fantasies, antagonisms, and more, um, including, as, as really comes out in The Viral Underclass, questions of sexuality, race, and class. And the phenomenon of scapegoating, especially as you weave it through with the figure of, of Michael Johnson um, is particularly key here. So I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about this state of affairs even before we get you know, to COVID per se. So specifically, can you tell us a little bit about the story of of Michael Johnson? And can you talk relatedly a little bit about why you find the rhetoric of
1: patient zero so problematic so michael johnson was well was a young man he's now about 30 um or 31 but he was a young man that i was made aware of by an editor of mine named mark shufs and this was right before i was trying to transition out of journalism and go into academia of course um I had been laid off and had had a hard time finding work. And then once I decided to go into um, academia, of course, then there were lots of work (laughs) opportunities again in journalism. But Mark is a a really phenomenal editor who's been writing about AIDS since I think it was called GRID, uh, Gay Related Immune Disease. And he saw this kind of story that I'm always teaching my students about where there was a real moral panic. There were headlines around the world that this young man whose screen name was Tiger Mandingo, was transmitting, uh, was purposely transmitting HIV to people or, or sometimes i would say is purposely giving people AIDS, which is incorrect in multiple levels. Um, and like too many stories in journalism, this was just a repost of a prosecutor's talking, you know, prosecutor's press uh, release yeah. that had been run locally and then was run in multiple countries and multiple continents as if this one young man was responsible for the 35 or 40 million people living with HIV around the world. And so Mark wanted me to do, which is really elementary journalism 101 to actually go and talk to the people. Um, And I eventually got to talk to Michael in jail. I talked to people that he'd had sex with. And eventually I talked to people who were uh, coerced into pressing charges by the prosecutor um, most of them did not actually want to do so, but they were, they were co- coerced into it by the state and he was accused of, of purposely transmitting HIV or recklessly transmitting HIV. And I learned from knowing him, he certainly did not purposefully do anything of the sort. Um, and he's always maintained his his innocence and the laws are really bad and that they not only are punitive, you can go to prison for life in certain States in the United States for, not just HIV transmission, which also biologically can't really be determined which way it went, um, but you can be, uh, even just for exposing somebody to HIV, and in its worst, most insidious forms, you can be prosecuted in ways that the transmission can't even happen. And some of these laws were written in the 1980s when an HIV diagnosis was considered a death sentence, but some of them have been updated or written very recently. There has been a good move of decriminalizing it in in some places. Illinois, where I live, it's been decriminalized. and, And also when I give people a pep talk about not giving up on, on red States. Texas also decriminalized it a couple years ago and Missouri has, has rolled their laws back significantly. So um, red States are not, not to be written off politically in that way, but some of them were updated very recently. And the most insidious thing that happens is they got caught up in quote unquote, blue lives matter uh, laws. And so in some States, if you are arrested by a police officer Uh, and you have HIV and you spit or the cop bashes your head on their car on the sidewalk and start to bleed, you could be accused of of attempted murder of the police officers, a potentially capital offense. Um, So nothing about these laws, obviously, is good. They're they're harmful and they increase stigma. They make it less likely people get tested and they lead to an increase of, of the transmission of the virus. But one of the things that fascinated me most about this case, and I've been thinking about this in terms of your... Um, podcasts is I think that there's endless transference and endless projection that's going on psychoanalytically um, because the dynamic of how these laws play out and what they're interrogating is did the person disclose that they had HIV um, and in my experience and other clinical research and also for sad experience I've had you know a lot of people either don't talk about it or I mean some people talk about it but I think a lot of people don't talk about it and there's all this game theory and there's all this projection that's going on when people don't talk about it Um, and looking at archival material from the eighties and nineties, when both, when what HIV was known and uh, when it was known and when it wasn't known, when when people didn't, they knew something bad was happening. They knew that it was happening through sex between gay men primarily, but they didn't understand exactly what it was. There are some really interesting posters and artwork where two people will be talking to each other. And if they don't say anything, one will assume one is positive and the other will assume the other's positive. One is negative and the other will assume the other is negative or one is positive, one is negative. But when people don't talk about it, of course, they're always we're always projecting and transferring onto one another what we assume the other is. Yeah. Um, and so public health laws and practices, media and culture really need to facilitate easy conversation. Mm-hmm. The same is true with COVID and linguistically in, in everyday language, I was very interested even from the time I started working on this project that was you know, very much about sex and HIV, but I started thinking about how often our language will say, this person got me sick. You know, he got me sick. I didn't want to get someone sick, but it's usually a blame thing. Like they'll say, Oh, I went to work and you know, my coworker got me sick. Um, Well, you know, your coworker probably didn't have a choice about going to work. Like we only had this very brief window and it was, for all the death and horrible things that were happening in this country, I found it like almost utopian and fascinating and wonderful and hopeful for what could have happened from all this pain we went through and this death we went through that people who were sick could stay home from work and still mm-hmm. get paid and not be evicted. And so like I, I really have wanted to in this project in my own thinking always reframe back out to the economic when we say our coworker got us sick or how could this person send their kid to school with COVID knowing they had COVID? Well, if they if they don't have sick leave, if they don't have sick leave for their children or um, a way to take care of their kids, of course, they're going to take their kids somewhere. Of course, someone's going to go to work sick if the choices are go to work sick or be evicted or go hungry. Um, and we had these very brief moments that the Democrats largely brought around, Republicans too, but the Democrats have presided over the dismantling of, of all these frames that have helped people avoid when and how, you know, we quote unquote, get each other sick. And so I was really interested in how, how often um, people who are not living with HIV uh, under these HIV laws perceive themselves to be HIV negative, perceive themselves as to be pure, you know, quote unquote, unpolluted people who yeah, yeah. are going to be fine until they are polluted by somebody with HIV.
2: There seems to be, and I think that's that there's so much at stake in what you've described, this operation of, like, well, I almost want to use the phrase, and I'm putting scare quotes on it, people can't see, right, of, like, hygienic operations, right, yeah. These, like this idea of, like, a mental hygiene where it's, like, I don't want to have to have a difficult conversation with a partner about, you know, my status, right? I don't want to have to imagine the choices that a person who is HIV positive might have to weigh vis-a-vis what they disclose in the light of state laws that will criminalize them or that will submit them to some sort of surveillance tracking mechanism, even if they try to comply, etc., right? These are things that are distressing for us to think about. We would rather not think about it. They're noxious stimuli to use of Freudian phrase, right. right? So we want to push them away. We'd rather not think about them. And that kind of hygienic operation of like, get away this thing that feels toxic, that that has this contagious power, that's going to give me ideas that I don't want to feel, very naturally, it seems to me, you know, in a way that I think, obviously we should contest, politically, to find expression in these political, uh, rhetorical, ideological moves that institutionally, you know, like silo people away. These kind of hygienic operations of putting people in prisons or of... um, I don't even know, having cops do things like search people's pockets all the time, right? And and, and making them develop a type of hysteria over whether or not they're going to get stuck with something or fentanyl poisoning via the air, et cetera, right? It produces all these kind of morbid symptoms that really do boil down to a kind of mystification both of the social, like, economic material basis of these things and the ways in which, like, choices of powerful people or sort of collective things that aren't even felt to be choices produce those, scenarios but they also just on, on a very basic level seem to function as a way to ward away the fear that you could be in the position that this other person currently is in it's much easier to send yeah. someone to prison than to imagine what, yeah. you, what they might have gone to yeah. gone through or that you might be in their position
0: and that's the patient zero fantasy right if if you could have if you could go back and and wall this person away
1: yeah.
0: again quote-unquote hygienically
1: um yeah. Yeah. So this phrase, um, yeah, patient zero. That's a a great way to segue into talking about it. Um, was originally, you know, I, it was originally a fuck up by a journalist, and I talk about this all the time with students. There was a, a we now know from both from RNA, uh, which is the the sort of equivalent to DNA, but but in viruses, you know, we know from Um, RNA forensics that that HIV has been circulating in the North American continent since the 1950s or 60s. Um, It probably jumped into humans around the 1920s. And for a variety of reasons, you know, it took till the ontology makes it so that it's not in our consciousness until the 1980s. Um, But there are various ways to understand that, that it had probably been around before. There's a really fascinating case of a young man named Robert Rayford, who probably Probably died of AIDS and a black teenager in in St. Louis, where I was doing all my work, in, in the night, died in the nineteen sixties. But the origin of this this idea of a patient zero starts with a French Canadian flight attendant named Gaetan Dugas, who's identified by um, the journalist Randy Shilts, who also had HIV and died of AIDS before there were medications. And Duga was sort of a dream model for public health investigators. He was contacted by an investigator who was working in California and he was incredibly forthcoming. He was trying to help do contact tracing with the people that he'd had sex with. He had come of age uh, after Stonewall. He'd had sex with a lot of people. It seemed completely safe to do so for, for gay men at the time. Gay men didn't use condoms because... Uh, there wasn't HIV yet and condoms were something that straight people use for pregnancy prevention, but all of the STIs that were around at the time were easily treatable, but he was trying to be incredibly helpful. And this investigator, um, had been working all with people in California, except for this flight attendant he talked to. So he marked him as patient O for the letter O outside of California, um, and, and Randy Schultz completely got it wrong and thought that was a zero and thought he was the first one, even though he also knew that there were hundreds or thousands of other people who were being talked to at the same time. Um, and so it's a, it's a bit in this book, but it's really in the publicity tour where his publisher like makes this patient, patient zero a thing. And yeah. linguistically it's been picked up all over the place, including by health organizations and was used often in. Covid, um, but this process of whether or not you, I, I think that there are really difficult um, and bad things about using zero, and and I think it linguistically codes to ground zero, which I, I just saw Oppenheimer, and that's the, the origins of ground zero come from the Trinity test site, um, the idea that the, that's where this where this explosion happens, where the nuclear bomb, that's a ground zero. It was also used in nine eleven to talk about the ground zero of um, the World Trade Center. And linguistically, I think this is coding onto that and building on this idea that this one biological bomb has come into the community and, and yeah. sullied everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that one of the most difficult things that disability writing has really helped me think about is it exposes this myth that we imagine ourselves broadly as healthy and unpolluted. And this is Patrick was was just talking about when people are in these situations that can be difficult, and we want to facilitate people being able to have those difficult conversations. But when they're in them, it feels, you know, to use a very scientific word, icky (laughs) to think about (laughs) ourselves um, in this way. And so there's this default setting, I think, to imagine ourselves as able-bodied and we're fine and we just have to ask the other person, are they clean or not? Um, Which is not a useful technique because most people, or the, the last time I was looking at statistics in the US, like most people with HIV don't know they have it. So like they don't, and it doesn't, necessarily have symptoms early on. So just asking someone that doesn't, it's not a good public health strategy, but it also speaks to the way that we will think of ourselves as healthy and see other people as unhealthy. Um, When in fact, we are sharing this collective body. And if we want to, if we want to not Become sterile positive with the virus. Um, we need to have an active stance in it. I dealt with so many questions internally with my editors, with readers over the years about the ethics of HIV criminalization, and I'm embarrassed to say. You know, originally I thought no one should go to prison, but it should probably be punished in some way. I, I now completely <laughs> disavowed that position. Mm-hmm. Um, But at the time, it was really interesting to hear people think about and talk about the ethics of it. And the prevailing idea was largely, at least amongst people outside of the HIV decriminalization community was that, yes, you have an ethical responsibility to disclose your status. Um, And I think that, you know, I I do think people should when they're able to. But as we've been talking about, there are all these reasons why people don't want to and are pressured not to and are pressured not to be able to have these conversations. Um, And I actually now think ethically, it's really unethical for people who perceive themselves, whether or not they are but who perceive themselves to be free of a virus to put all that responsibility on the people living with it. Yeah. Um, and I think that COVID should really have taught us that we don't yeah. even know. Like we can't we can't only blame people who are living with COVID as if they're somehow bad. They're not. It's just the luck of the draw. It's something we all have to collectively do. And it's actually, I think, deeply unethical to try to just foist that upon people who've happened to become seropositive with the virus, whatever yeah. the virus is.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is a real through line through the book, um, um, you're you're just consistent, and I think this is so important. Refusal of like the placing of the burden on the individual. There's this moment, and it almost I, I think for for some readers will be like, okay, well, it just this is just like a moment, but for me, I'm like, I will. this is like indelibly craved in my mind. You say it almost in passing where you're just like, people seem to have a really, like whether it's COVID or whether it's like the flu or whatever, they seem to be really convinced that they know who got them sick. And ever since yes. I read that, like I was listening to a podcast <laughs> the other day and this this woman was like, oh yeah, well I got COVID in Heathrow. I mean, I wasn't wearing a mask. And I was like, you've been traveling internationally and somehow you know that you got this in Heathrow? Like, okay, whatever. Impossible. But the point is to say that that the book in this way that's, you know, really so powerful is a critique of individualism. And you're so insistent throughout that we have to talk about structures and about, you know, what you could call the sort of like world system of of capitalism. Um, and, And I was hoping we could kind of draw this out, although we've been dancing around it already so much, in um, thinking, you know, just just a moment ago about uh, you know ethical debates about uh, HIV status and decriminalization, etc. But like, what does our focusing on individual blame and individual responsibility, you know, whether it is about you know viral load or or status in 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 some sort of way, what does that perpetuate and what does it mystify? And and I think this is also a good moment because, you know, what we're talking about here is the sort of like a general alienation of 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 life under capitalism and the way it translates into the specific experiences of viral alienation that you describe. Yeah. I think this is a good moment to ask you if you can gloss for us the term that gives you the title that you borrow from Sean Strub, which is the viral underclass.
1: Sure. So the, the phrase... um It had been the end of my dissertation, which was largely about HIV criminalization as a form of structural racism, homophobia too, but I was really talking about it in the context of of structural racism. And the last chapter I titled The Viral Underclass kind of as I was thinking about what would happen from here. And I was trying to figure out what kind of book it was going to be. It wasn't gelling in, in some ways that I'd hoped. And I was trying to figure out what to do with it when COVID began. And I started seeing that the same... The same physical neighborhoods I knew in St. Louis and New York were becoming uh, high concentrations of COVID. And that made me think back to this phrase, which the activist Sean Strube originally used to talk about how um, people living with HIV were living under a separate set of laws in, in U.S. society, many societies. And in the United States, like largely we don't spell out. The racism. I mean, it has happened. There are laws that are explicitly, you know, about race. But for the most part, the way that this is why I think critical race theory is being so attacked. For the most part, the laws don't say it. They they are they enact it or, or they they yeah. lay out the groundwork for them to be disproportionately creating um, structural racism. Um, but they usually don't say it. But with HIV laws, they explicitly say it. If you have HIV, you are living under these these different set of circumstances and for very normative life experiences. If you deviate in any way um, you can go to jail for prison. And Sean very effectively talks about this using uh, babies, you know, newborns that are born with HIV. They're just going to for their entire life be living under the separate set of laws. And he said that creates a viral underclass. I heard activists using it kind of a different way where they were having Uh, A a specific form of a debate that I have heard so many times in my 10, 12 years of covering the Black Lives Matter movement and other social movements as a a journalist, in that they were talking about the difference between abolition and reform. And so there was a, a pretty large and sometimes successful move to reform HIV laws to say that, well you know, not everyone should be prosecuted by them. If you are on medication and you are your viral load is in such a way that you can't transmit to other people, then you shouldn't be subject to these laws. Or if you're using a condom, you shouldn't be subject to these laws. Um, but these activists were saying that was actually going to create more and infinitely more intimate uh, surveillance because basically they're saying like, okay, everyone has to not just the state knows whether or not you knows if you're hiv positive if you have a positive result it's going to be known to the state forever but a lot of these reform efforts were saying well you also need to have your viral load recorded by the state and then that will get you you know preferential status of course that's just one moment in time your viral load can change in a day um, so it's also not not that effective but they were i think correctly suspicious of what documenting everyone's viral load would do and also saying that will also leave the people behind who can't lower their viral load. And who can't lower their viral load? It's people who are not on medication and who are people not on medication. They're incarcerated, recently incarcerated, homeless, and dis- way disproportionately African-American. Um, and so they were calling that a viral underclass. And I kind of used it in, in sort of a third way to think about what are all the social structures that are creating this viral underclass. Why are these people in in a viral underclass? And so I eventually came up with 12 different vectors, starting with race, which is the biggest one that I had worked with and intersects with many of them, but also thinking about the role of incarceration, the role of disability and ableism, um, the role of capitalism, how this is creating this class of people and how viruses can help us see the role of class, which largely is much more difficult to talk about in the United States than in other countries, and to to learn from viruses in a way that they're showing us how class operates and who they're affecting because of class matters. Um, and so that's kind of how I how I got to the frame and the the way that I was um working through these matters in the book.
2: What I'm thinking about here, just to sort of get back to you what you're saying in, in slightly different terminology, right, is that you're your description of this kind of aha moment that you have in the book where you're like, oh, the the same spaces that are, when you begin to see maps of where COVID is proliferating, like, oh, these are also the places, these geographies are very familiar uh, to you from uh, data on the demographics of police violence and of AIDS and of food insecurity and of all these other things. And and in other words, what we're seeing is a, in the causal sense, an overdetermination of factors that are coming together to, to, to really super add a kind of like
1: vulnerability and marginalization and risk on a certain set of people. One of the things that was so fascinating and helped allow me to start seeing this was that these viruses, HIV and and SARS, are very, very different viruses. Like it would make a a fair amount of sense to understand influenza, tuberculosis, and uh, SARS, you know, operating in the same spaces because you can see very clearly physically, biologically, in terms of ventilation, why they're moving. HIV is an extremely, extremely different virus. Um, the way that it moves, and um, it's it's much more difficult to transmit. And yet, yes, these maps were emerging, um, and so that that was one of the ways I started seeing. Yes, like the the nature of the virus itself has a physicality that you know we would all be very blessed if there were just standards around ventilation in this country and in this world that would you know help deal with climate change and all the respiratory viruses. But we're seeing all these structural things that are making it happen to a certain class of people, including moving. You know, there, there was as we we're recording just in the past couple of days, uh, a new booster has been um, has been approved. But it's the first one that's really going to be approved under uh, with the the vaccines and the boosters coming not through the federal government directly, yeah. but through the private insurance market. And so we're very much primed to see the same things happening with COVID racial disparities and class disparities, as you see with influenza disparities, who has insurance, who doesn't, who's homeless, who's not. And that's actually not a matter of ventilation. This is very much a matter of structure of who's going to, you know, who's going to get an annual booster. Um, The people who also see their doctor once a year and who get a flu shot are also probably going to get a a COVID booster. Great. Um, But the people who never see a doctor are not. So they're the ones who are going to be more likely to get all of these things, including people who have HIV who are more likely to have that HIV progress onto AIDS. I've known so many MDs who've been, um, who've done residencies or worked in ERs, particularly in in the South in Louisiana and the Mississippi river Delta. um, And they've lost patients to AIDS and it's because the people come in and they're dead in two weeks. And, They haven't seen a doctor in 10 or 15 years. Had they seen a doctor every year, the doctor would see that they had HIV. And if they, you know, this is a big if, if they had a decent social worker, they would get them into medication, but that's still predicated on them not being in jail, not being homeless and seeing a doctor every year and we're seeing these patterns really be primed for what's going to be happening with covid long term
2: that seems to be yeah i just i'm thinking about this and it's 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 intense to almost feel the momentum of i guess like the social inertia just sort of doubling down on this stuff and and it it's uh it, it's a really dysphoric feeling to witness it happen in real time and it, but but also too it it i think about it in terms of just like this This way in which, like, again, people are existing at this space where they are suffering the brunt of a whole different series of social processes of miseration, neglect, etc. And then the natural consequence of that, what we could even call a symptom, is that they will then develop something like, you know, they'll be at high risk that they'll show up with COVID, right, or or etc. And the way sort of the collective, or at least the hegemonic power structure metabolizes that or processes this is to take what is in fact symptomatic suffering And then to transmute it through a process of moral blames making that makes them actually the cause of the problem. And not coincidentally then to double down on procedures in terms of policy, in terms of institution responses, et cetera, that actually make that problem worse and hyper intensify it and shore up the existing power structure in this way. So it's this brutally sort of self-fulfilling machine for serving people up for risk, blaming them for the consequences of that doubling down on the factors that caused that while mystifying the entire state of affairs in general.
1: Correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I, the other thing that, I, yeah, sorry. I, I'm just thinking about this in terms of like the patient zero thing. And, and it, it's interesting how like, this is a uh, thinking about that is just like the, the simplicity of this moral, like the implicit moral model there. Right. If we could just go back and find this one person, we could stop this process. Right. right. If, it's like going back in time to kill Hitler and that like, sort of like that thought exercise, like if you just go back in time and kill this one, you know, kill Gaetan, the flight steward, then somehow we wouldn't have AIDS as a problem. But right. the, the answer is no, if we actually had a decent healthcare system, if we had ventilation, if we had that type of prophylactics, then we wouldn't have this as a problem, but that would require doing something other than doubling down on an essentially punitive reactive frame. And in, in a similar key, I wonder too, vis-a-vis sort of transfer, trans, what the future may hold. I sometimes wonder and think back to that period of time in which, you know, we did briefly get checks, right? And it's, it it was so striking how, and at the time I felt like it was inevitable, but I, you know, I think, we've actually, we may have talked about this on Twitter at the time too, that it was inevitable that that wasn't gonna last. And that in some ways, like, sure, not for reasons of actual financial exigency, right? People could go, I don't know they could read ProPublica, like literally two days ago talking about how he dropped a hundred billion dollars on a a new destroyer that literally will not get farther than 50 miles out of port before stopping and breaking <laughs> in the water, right? So like the issue is not a financial exigency, but rather it was like, you got the sense that we couldn't afford to let people have anything approaching even like the hint of a universal basic income, because it might give them ideas about that. It it might give them some breathing space and might slow down this process of doubling down. And then at the end of the day, from the perspective of the ruling class or from the perspective of what is imaginable in terms of this system of doubling down on inertia and established systems of power, it's preferable that people get COVID and die then that they get ideas that things could be otherwise.
1: Well, there was just, um, yeah, the other day I was reading how Medicare actuaries are saying, yes, Medicare is going to be cheap. You know, we're saving money on Medicare as a country now because, uh, because COVID killed a lot of the people that would have had long-term costs for 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 Medicare. So that kind of logic is baked into the system we live in. And this is the first time I've kind of thought of that. When you brought the, the Hitler analogy, I curated a, a film festival uh, called Viruses on Film in March at at BAM in Brooklyn, and we showed Twelve Monkeys, um, which is like kind of that analogy. It's yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. get back to the beginning of this pandemic. But in that movie, very crudely, but in, but interestingly, you see the world in which that virus was eventually released, and it makes me think of the Zoe Leonard quote about um, AIDS. That you know, AIDS. Did not just reveal the problem of the virus. It revealed all these other factors. And I've I've heard so many people I know who I think you know really do the Lord's work wherever they are in the world. Anyone who who does work with HIV does a lot to try to alleviate the suffering of the virus and and what it can do to people. But they're always you know the salt of the earth people who are really tied into homelessness and housing and and addiction and all the other things that make it a problem. And, And they say it's really crude to. To think of people as hosts, as just a host of a virus, and that's the problem that has to be dealt with. And if you could wave a magic wand and get rid of HIV, of course, it would be great to stop that suffering. But every person who had it and every person who died of AIDS would still be facing all the reasons why they got that virus. And if you care about the actual person, you have to deal with all of those other things too. Um, And I've heard the most twisted and shallow logic when I've been in conversations sometimes around homelessness. Homelessness to me is maybe homelessness and incarceration. I think if you want to isolate individual um, nuts and bolts reasons, I think are two of the reasons why we have the most infectious disease on so many fronts in the United States. Mm -hmm. Those are just incredibly potent drivers. Um, And I'll get into arguments with people about whether the the efficacy of certain drugs around HIV. There's a, a drug called PrEP, which you can take daily for the most part. It's what I take, um, uh, and you can be exposed to HIV and you're not going to get HIV. There's various forms that are trying to make it long term where you get a shot every month, two months. There's trials for ones that will last six to 12 months. And I think these are mostly matters of convenience for people who can already get the medication. And they have their own, their adherence issues around taking a daily pill. There are also adherence issues around getting a shot once a month that can also like give you a pretty painful welt for a few days. But like people who are homeless are not going to get the shot or the pills. And that is one of the drivers. And but I'll I'll get into arguments if people say, no, you know, we could find these homeless people every six months and give them the shot. And it's like, <laughs> like why Why is somebody who doesn't have a roof over their head even going to care in a way about this thing that is going to be a problem in months or years when they don't have a way to deal with their health that day? And no, and often you probably can't find the person, But but also how much are they going to see this as something they should do for the public good if the public is not even... Uh, has shut them out of society. I think the Ruth Wilson Gilmore um, idea of organized abandonment is really, really apt in understanding who is affected by these viruses. And they're, regardless of how difficult their lives are, people understand when they're being seen as whole people Mm -hmm. or as a problem that is trying to be dealt with. And a lot of public health, I think these ideas of, yes, we can find a person who is experiencing homelessness and give them a shot. And it's like, no, we need to give them a fucking house. Like, yep. That's the first thing that they need. Then well, you can deal with sort of other issues, but you cannot like let people be tortured by being without a home and expect them to accept being uh, dealt with by forcible hygiene cleansing um, in a way that's meant to... To deal with the public good when their public good is not being addressed,
2: stated in those terms it's just so stark how the how like the model of intervention or or even just the way of conceptualizing the problem is constructed from the perspective of a particular person, yeah right it, it, I I'm just almost imagining like the San Francisco executive being like. Well, first, there's there's the general. So let's just, let's stipulate that for people who are operating under the neoliberalism, therefore the grace of God, go we like anxiety, and they're doing all these hygienic things. There's a certain conceptual gradient, the, an ick factor you got to work against to imagine the choices that a person who is unhoused has to face, right? Or to like to imagine like how they might relate to a you know getting a jab or, or taking a regular bill. but but also though it's. It, it's so perverse, and you use the phrase like temporarily embarrassed millionaires. You, you you cite that in the book. It's so much easier for the average American, quote unquote, to somehow slot themselves into the perspective of I don't again the San Francisco businessman who's just like, what do you mean it will be difficult? Of course, we just round them up. It's just an engineering problem. I, I, they're these homeless people. They're always underfoot anyways. We could just collect them. We 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 could hygienically put them in, put them in a camp. Maybe house them somewhere. I don't know, but temporarily to do this, we'd stick them and then they move on. And it's the fact that. The, that sort of elaborate and, and, and fundamentally ludicrous sort of position of being above things is yeah. easier to be normatively imagined than the, just the reality. Like people sitting with the idea of what it might mean to not have a place to live or to have to worry about like basic food insecurity uh, before you worry about longer term health concerns is um, is such a social indictment.
0: Wanted to make sure and this is this is from the chapter where you talk um, about animality and you talk about it in a lot of ways in, in some very abstract senses but you also talk about it in terms of like um, who's working in slaughterhouses and also in how do viruses jump um, from animals to humans and how is climate change making those jumps you know something that is you know more and more inevitable but there's a passage that's it's really short. Um, And I think it gets at a lot of the logic that Patrick is talking about that allows folks to see themselves in a certain position where they could never be a part of that underclass, right? And so there's this, there's a line, um, who is considered a human animal or a non-human animal is also highly gendered racialized and ableist, with those closest to white straight maleness being categorized as human, while the rest of us have historically been considered non human to varying degrees. And and I think that's just such a um, nice is not the right word, but it's such a clear and concise articulation of how does some of this siloing off um, of who is considered a person who we have to worry about in terms of their health and the position from which so much conversation, um, happens in terms of like, this could never happen to me. Um, and you, I mean, I think you call this, uh, you know, white immunity. Um, and I, I think that's just incredibly clarifying, but I just wanted to make sure that our listeners had a chance to like hear that articulation of some of this logic. Um, and because it's not stated generally.
1: no. Uh, uh, thank you. I mean, the the myth of white immunity. That was a chapter rework that my my editor, uh, Cecily Van Buren Friedman, very um, very brilliantly forced me to to abandon something else I was working on and 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 kind of go deeper on that. And um, under these conversations from from the first story that that became this book, the the trial of Michael Johnson, most of his sex partners were they're all male. Most of them were white. You know, I was really fascinated by how either things were not discussed, or these young men were saying that they asked him if he was clean, and he said he was clean, you know, "quote unquote." I'm using air quotes. Right, um, right. And it was so fascinating to me to think of, to think about the social construction of viruses. At some point, I was reading, uh, I think, Cindy Patton's book, and trying to think about how, like, how would I explain to a relative who <laughs> knows nothing about critical theory, you know, that that like a virus um, is socially constructed or body parts are socially constructed. And I realized like, oh, it's this case. Like these people thought, oh, I just asked them this. And that created a barrier of prophylaxis where there wasn't one. And this happens all the time. It's called the, um, I think it's called the known unknown heuristic Mm -hmm. that we imagine people we're close to are not going to, you know, to, you know, I'm using the the problematic language when infect us um, because we know them. Um, and I really see this often in in gay male relationships where it, it, PrEP is, you know, the 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 drug has changed things a bit. But prior to PrEP, you would often see like couples would not use condoms with each other, but they'd say they were using them with people who are not their primary partner. Sure. Um, and they would imagine that like their relationship is somehow protecting them. And so that was one of the reasons why I haven't looked at the numbers on this in, in a couple of years, but I remember there was some alarm at a time at understanding, oh, a growing area of HIV transmission is married gay male couples. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like like single people are actually more vigilant about uh, taking mitigation measures, but we imagine that marriage is going to protect us, that that's a social construction of how we understand it. Something very similar has happened across STI transmission with elderly people. Elderly people in nursing homes are a growing edge of STI transmission because they think... I am seventy. Like age, somehow is going to protect you. And no, like you know, there there are biological realities to you know, bacteria and viruses, but we imagine these things um, into being. And so that's a bit of how I thought about white immunity. There, there are structural immunities to whiteness. Like all immunity, it has its limits, and I think that it's imagined beyond what's actually happening. We see this with the opioid crisis. We see this, I think. Um, uh, in various ways with the opioid crisis and, and with fentanyl, not with um, the the imagined fentanyl. Uh, <laughs> Patrick was talking about the, <laughs> the imagined fentanyl exposure that's happening with police, but actual fentanyl where communities where the opioid epidemic is absolutely ravaging them do not want to, or large portions of them do not want to engage um, sterile syringe exchange. Because this doesn't happen to, quote, people like us, right. even as it is happening to people like them. And so I thought that was a lot of the dynamic that I saw in the original case. And um, animality and speciesism was probably the biggest growing edge for me in this book. It's the part one of the areas I get the most questions. Um, I hope that what I wrote about it helps people seek out other work. I think Mel Chen's work is really yeah. amazing on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grad school... Um, Comrades, uh Sonara Taylor, Sunny Taylor, um, her book Be Suburban, Burden is really amazing. And I and one of the things I'm 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 trying to be very careful with because it is difficult, is this idea of who's been made you know animal or non-animal. And I think that disability scholars, particularly Sunny, are really sophisticated at understanding there is a history to the way people like Sarah Bartram.
0: Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: That that you know that enslaved Africans have been made and and people with disabilities have been made to seem as non-human, and we can't be glib about that. And so I think that that disability and thinking about that uh, and thinking about the ableism around the racism around that is really important. Um, At the same time, I think that there's a really interesting argument that we don't have to, we don't have to excuse you know treating someone like an Animal for their benefit, but we also don't have to treat animals awfully. and those and the people like they're very related, right? like the, the conditions of how animals are kept and slaughtered in industrial yes. processing facilities are also an assault on the people doing that work. Yeah. Um, the work that they're doing, the conditions that they're working in, and the conditions that they're also working in because of the economics of it. and those things are all all very closely related.
2: I think that chapter, this question of like animality and the animal versus the human, brings us back to something we we're talking about in the beginning, right? Namely, the ability to to, to kind of like ask ask questions that are that on the one hand seem basic, or even sort of like can be get troped as being silly or frivolous, or sort of like the type of like leftist sort of like dorm room conversation two AM. You take a hit off the bong and I'm like, we're all just animals, are we? Like, what's the difference between me and my dog at the end of the day? Like that type of shit. But to able to ask those with a position of sincerity and without sacrificing empathy, right? So much in the same way as we were talking about bodies without sacrificing agency, right? Or like talking about collectivity without sacrificing the capacity of of, of given persons to make their own, to chart their own destinies within limited factors. We, we can do these things together. And I, I, I wanted to say that, that that chapter on animality or like about animals, about like the ways in which we process so collectively Animals for meat was for me a real eye opening kind of gut punch chapter to the extent to which, like, even just on this basic level, after you'd spent so much time describing how our carceral system is basically yay many petri dishes for exposing people to viruses and keeping them confined in tight cages, and then pivoting to talking about workers in like factory farms, the mere image of people in cages and then animals in boxes. I found myself recoiling from it, but like, how dare I make this comparison between animals and people? Then I realized it's not about my making the comparison or entertaining the comparison. Materially, we do warehouse people in obscene conditions, and we warehouse these other animals in these obscene conditions. And that is a material fact. That produces all this type of viral contagion, that produces incredible amounts of suffering, and that also produces morbid symptoms that are um, kind of unparalleled. And the example that came to mind here, which bears on a lot of other things, which comes up in this chapter, is... Well, you mentioned earlier in the book how one of the things that comes up in the collective imaginary, or like these fever dreams, as COVID is first taking place, are these viral stories, these moral panics about kids like
1: having, you know, like bug chasing COVID parties, yeah, yeah, <laughs> gonna When go, we later <laughs> see, like, yeah, bug chasing, and I lo- and I loved when people started y- bug chasing is a term that is. Um, Used to to talk about people who are who are intentionally trying to get HIV, and it's largely a myth. Although there are subcommunities of people who who do it, but it was really used as a pejorative to talk about AIDS. Is you know something the gays are bringing upon themselves, um, particularly in the nineteen eighties, but exists t- till now. But then you literally have people like intentionally trying to get covid like conservatives you know saying they want coughing you know d- deliberately yeah. like like bug chasing yeah. um to to prove that this is no notes you know this is not a big deal um and it was really fascinating to see this pejorative used against the subcommunity community like being openly embraced mm-hmm. by uh the most conservative you know white Christian heterosexuals.
2: It it was wild too because he added sort of spandrel to the story as you related it on like ABC, whatever local, wherever it was, was that kids are not only having bug chasing parties, but are COVID chasing neck parties. I don't know what I feel like that that Ice T meme from Law and Order, which has had plenty of like bug chasing episodes, being like the kids don't want a COVID (laughs) party. It's a new hot thing. Like they (laughs) like they they, they, they throw they throw all their fidget spinners in a big bowl, and then like just you know what happens, happens. But like that, that they were also like sorry, that they were also like running betting pools on who is going to get turn up COVID positive the most? And and you, you know, very <laughs> both astutely and uh, and kind of rarely because it involves going against this type of fear-mongering, Just like ask the obvious questions, like, are kids really sophisticated enough to both be organizing these parties and doing like regular testing regimens to the point that they want to bet on it? Like, who is who is the fifteen year old that's making book on who gets COVID? But then, and this is why I wanted to like really stress how how jaw dropping the, the, the section on animals and animality was is that you give the example of how actually, in fact, there were people doing literal bookmaking gambling on COVID outcomes. And those were managers of slaughterhouses literally doing betting pools for which there were later legal investigations about whether or not given workers would get sick while making them show up to work. And that could, there's something there, I think, in nutshell about these logics of blame making, of like, um, disavowal. disavowal and fever dream type stuff right where where it's like uh th- that bears on this heuristic too of the known and the unknown right uh wh- where it you know it maps onto many other things too right th- these anxieties about the kids they're coming to get us well of course com- they must be it's the kids they're going to give us covid or it's quote-unquote the gays they're spreading this disease right but also too it, it seemed to map and i'm talking about this on twitter this morning when i shared this remarkable episode from both your second chapter and the slaughterhouses chapter Thinking about all these moral panics that are happening, you know, that are not just on the right, but like all the concerns about, say, stranger danger or the ways in which children are going to be abused by drag queens. When in fact, the most likelihood is it going to be someone in the family, right? Or even in a particularly grotesque, like morbid symptom mode, sometimes this meme that comes around about like, uh, there's kitty litter in classrooms because kids are being made by like big gender to think that they're cats right and isn't that disgusting and, and and the kernel of material basis for this is the fact that we have been putting kitty litter or similar type substances in kindergartens so the kids have a place to piss when they're locked down in active shooter drills
1: and also i never hear anyone bring up in in this setting as well like i went to public school all, you know, elementary school all through high school the bathrooms were unusable there were no stall doors <laughs> yeah. there were no toilet paper and no soap so like you couldn't use the bathroom and like that and i i keep waiting for that to come into the mm-hmm. kitty litter conversation it does like that nobody you know would go number 2 um <laughs> or the mm-hmm. boys anyway in high school because there were no fucking stall doors on the bathrooms and like that economic reality or that reality of what's actually happening never comes into this conversation around kitty litter and whatnot. And yet it, it is an equally perverse actual reality around yeah. bathroom usage in schools. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think what we, I just want to kind of sum up one of the things that Patrick is saying with a phrase, something like uh, we often think about fantasy as something that is valenced positively. Mm. But what you're talking about is fearful fantasies, right? Um, and what are the, the, the fearful fantasies that, that do some work of masking yeah. actually much more fearsome realities.
2: And, and I think that that's, it's a choice to fantasy, like a choice to fantasy that in the face of something horrifying, to choose fantasy that actually makes the horrifying thing worse is both understandable, yet also like tragic and reprehensible at the same time. And, and I think here about, we've been talking about this, the myth of white immunity, right? And, and I actually think, you know, we've as, as you cite the work of Elizabeth Rickley Field, the sociologist, that, you know, like, even adjusting for the kind of, like, turn in which COVID was becoming more of a vicious killer in white elderly communities after a certain point, their life expectancies were still better than that of, you know, the vast majority of, of black and brown people living in other class spaces. But, like, there is something about the way in which, like, the myth of immunity or the myth of prophylaxis... Becomes in this kind of morbid symptom mode, a, a kind of like terminal autoimmunity or like strangling yourself with your own prophylaxis, right? And I think here, I think mean, Jonathan Metzl, who, you know, has a wonderful forward to your book, right, also kind of describes these situations in which people are so scared, white people specifically, are so scared about the idea of, of uh, stereotypically black home invaders coming in from Ferguson or wherever, you know, and he uses these examples from Missouri, that they will buy guns and actuarially speaking, be much more likely to kill themselves with those guns. Right. Yeah but it's the choice of fantasy that has a material ramification mm-hmm. and that even if we if we kind of step back we're like people are literally preferring to be killed by their own fantasies and to kill the fantasies even to kill people that they love with their own fantasies or run that risk but at least then they don't have to personally think about Bigger structures about personal complicity, about dangers that might be nearer, or even the idea that they're that they themselves might be that danger. Right? This is that kind of like basic hygienic thing that goes on too, and I think this comes up in my own work a lot. Like the everyone wants to be the good guy with a gun, right? Yeah. And no one who wants to be the good guy with a gun, it's it. There's a a real difficult gradient that you have to sit with, like a, a a difficult icky thinking you have to do to be like, wow. I'm going to be the good guy with the gun until the microsecond I pull the trigger and like, you know, kill my kids or kill my wife in a fight or something like that. And then ontologically, now I'm a bad guy. But, you know, how could I possibly have been a bad guy if I was a good guy? Like, where does that moment of slippage happen? And the answer is, well, that slippage, that ontological sort of hygienic division is, is, is untenable. It's actually the outcome of social forces that are not reducible to individual choice. Or at least we have to talk about individual choice against the backdrop of. But yeah, it, it really does feel like a, I, I, I want to pivot back to Abby for the, for the questions that we're going to be asking next. But like, it really does feel like a, a this moment of I don't actually, Stephen. What I really wanted to ask you, in some ways, was just like how you're staying sane uh, amid all this, or like how anyone. I, 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 this may not make this man. I make the podcast, but I remember like when I got COVID first, right? I got COVID real bad in in, in like February, March of 2020, right? I remember just being like. This kind of depressive clarity being like nothing would, nothing is actually going to change in terms of a lot of, I remember thinking like asking the question, like would people behave differently if it were to be emerge, that children were also vulnerable to this. This was during the period of time in which, you know, we, the belief was that children had no you know, vulnerability and that there wasn't such thing as long COVID, et cetera. And my impulse in, in you know, in March, 2020 was to be like, no, we probably wouldn't change it. People would take individual steps to protect, you know, their children and ensure their precious future and the survival of whatever, you know. But that also the the force of social inertia. We would just absorb that at a certain point. And and I wonder, from your perspective, as you as you over the, over these past years, and as you've also sort of sketch out what you've sensed to be kind of like coming down the pike, so to speak, in terms of like the integration of vaccine just into this broader system of certain people. It's going to be endemic in certain populations. It's going to be that feeling of like fatal inertia or of a refusal to change or of embracing a fantasy no matter how many people it kills, but then at least we supposedly get to embrace the fantasy. Like, how, how, how are you... What I'm basically asking you to do is to talk about how you process the past <laughs> four years and are managing sanity in a space of like malignant normality.
1: I don't know how well I'm managing sanity. Um, I mean, I keep thinking I probably need to, to go into analysis, which is one kind <laughs> of therapy I haven't really tried yet. Um, so, so as I listen to your podcast each week, I'm like, yeah, I should probably try to find an analyst and <laughs> see if that will work. Um, I, I had a, I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had a really great therapist who ended up for a reason I, I, I won't say, although it was very great. She ended up closing her practice. Um, and I really appreciate her sharing with me why she did um, because we had gone through this very strange experience of, of COVID. And I, I, I had been doing, you know, zoom therapy with her when she was helping take care of um, sick relative and, and also you know, like hearing things in the house that one normally would not hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, you know, these strange circumstances we were in, and then I, I haven't had a talk therapist since, since she had to close her practice and I should probably find another one. Um, I, you know, I've really, one way I've gotten through it is with uh, conversations with people like you. I'm remembering very, you know, distinctly you going through COVID at the time. Um, and I've had, as I, as I've had as other, I'm more friends than I can think of who have it right now, I've had really great, um, deep conversations. Writing this book helped me in a lot of ways. I mean, it was traumatic in its way too, but, um, writing really helps me. And I, I very much need um, an assignment uh, to write. I think it would have been very hard. Like I was doing a bit of freelance writing at the beginning of COVID, but I hate freelancing. I hate pitching. Mm-hmm. And so like I felt really honored to to get to write this book. And I had, you know, I was just very, very lucky and blessed to have really good resources to write it on multiple fronts. From my publisher, from my agent, from my university, um, from all the people who very graciously agreed to talk to me as I write about it at length in chapter nine. Um, one of my very close mentors, Ward Harkavy, died of COVID early and he was single, uh, didn't have kids. And so some other former colleagues and I at the Village Voice really played a role in in handling his affairs and planning his memorial um, and things of that nature. And of course, that was difficult and painful, but I also, I, I was very grateful to get to play that role in his life and also to get to write about, and also, particularly because he was one of the editors that most shaped me as a writer. It was a real blessing to get to kind of carry on his legacy in that way. Um, and it's felt like a real blessing to to share about a number of the people of my friend, Livy in France, of Zach Kostopoulos, the HIV activist, um, who was was killed by a mob, including four police officers in in greece it, it was a real blessing that that's one of the ways that i've i've worked through it and of course it's been tough and I was thinking when you know when particularly when Abby was talking earlier about uh, these distinctions in animality it's been it's been a great intellectual and emotional exercise for me to think about its limits and i and i i've one thing I've done that certainly helped me—I don't know if it's kept me sane or not—but I've really thought about the nature and the purpose of theory. And I was very lucky to get to study with Lisa Dugan in graduate school, who is an amazing queer theorist and historian. And she would say theories are things that help you think, <laughs> and that that really helped me. And sometimes they help me on their limits. When you're talking, Patrick, about children, like I thought, yeah, I wondered too: at what level will there be concern, or will it just get absorbed? Mm-hmm. Um, and I. Used to often go to, and I still think about Lee Edelman's theory of futurity which which argued that American politics was organized entirely around the white middle class child and and its future, and a really clear way you could you could see this was that Abortion politics—I'd say I, this has changed in the past couple of years. But, but um, for a long time, like nobody would talk about abortion. Politicians will will not say I had an abortion. They'll much more likely to say I want my daughter to have the right to choice. Well, that's predicated on, on your daughter, like you reproducing, having a daughter, um, yeah. and her, you know, potentially reproducing as well. But I find real limits to futurity after the the last few years. Like I think that their data is clear on what what COVID can do to children um and we're seeing declining rates of vaccination in yeah. certain populations of for not just covid for all kinds of things now and so i think that there're real limits to it and and i loved what you were both talking about like what fantasies emerge which are engaged and which are displacing other things we can't think about so since the book came out and and i'm now working on a, a new afterword for the paperback that'll come out next year but I think it was just last Thursday, the 9-11 Emergency Act was reauthorized for the 22nd year or 21st year, um, or the 21st time. And you know, the COVID public emergency is over, even as it kills hundreds of people a day still in the United States. But the 9/11 myth of the outsider coming in to harm us, we're still taking off our shoes, we still can't take a, you know, a can of Coke onto a plane. And that fantasy pushes away in some ways the thing that's too difficult to think about. And I think the animality is interesting that way too, because you're right, Patrick, like we can, if we look, and thank you for making that connection between those chapters, I never would have. So thank you that that's really interesting to hear it. You know, we can see, yes, we're, we're treating people in prison the same way that we're treating hogs it affects them both. It also affects the workers in those environments as mm-hmm. well, and everyone in the networks. But I think what's really being displaced with a lot of animal things is the ick factor of people wanting to see a separation. It's not there. They don't like to, We don't like to think that we we're like close enough to a monkey or a pig that we could share viruses. And the viruses like show that's not true. We we are close yeah. enough biologically to um, to be affected in a very, very direct way. And I think this is such an important message. Mm-hmm. After the summer where we all baked and, and were so hot and, you know, of course humans died, but also like huge swaths of sea life died and mm-hmm. other living things. And we're all part of, you know, a similar system. This might seem like a tangent, but I was just in a, I did a panel at the socialism conference about leftist political possibilities in popular science fiction. And that led to, I thought no one would come. It was the last morning of the conference. It was packed. Yeah. Uh, and it led to so many interesting conversations, including um, after the fact, talking about space travel mm-hmm. in a way I had not heard from an indigenous perspective that the, the idea of another planetary, like being able to colonize and using that word purposely, yeah. um, colonize another planet is is laughable if you think about how dependent we are on other systems. Like it's like thinking your fingernail is going to represent life Um, that we could live on another planet without like everything in the sea and everything in the air and every other thing in the land. And I think that viruses like make us confront that reality that we cannot separate as much as we want to see a hard line between humans and non humans. um, The viruses say, no, like this one will jump between deer and humans. This one between rats and humans, not all of them do, but a lot of this one will go between birds some will move between some species and kill and not kill them. Some will kill both of them. Um, but there is a relationship. And I think if there's one overarching lesson I've I tried to work through in this book that everything is about relationship. There is no I by itself. And yeah. that is a fundamental threat to like the American sense of itself.
0: where you land in in the book which you know is is a brutal and devastating Journey. it is. And yet you do you end with this really powerful vision of interdependence, right and and of human beings. um you know, there is a in our cultural imaginary, it doesn't have to be this way, right? Like, what if we did think of ourselves as existing as a kind of collective body? Um, and as a collective body that coexists with other kinds of life, including animal life, and that is porous to to viruses. I'd like if we could wind up by talking about some of the movements and figures that are working against the grain of capitalism to uplift the viral underclass, right? To give prophylactic tools— to everyone um, and and otherwise break us out of this cycle of neglect and mass death and the sort of like hierarchies of disposability that we've been talking about. So can we ask you to talk a little bit about some of the activists that have inspired you, um, both in the book and outside of it? Because it does seem to me like, you know, these figures that, that show up throughout the book, they, are so integral to you thinking about this vision of interdependence.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to. Um one of in in the book, one of the activists that most inspired me was, was Zach Kostopoulos, who um I write about, I think, in in chapter five. And I had gotten a fellowship to work on my dissertation in Greece at NYU Center there, where I thought I would hopefully just get to eat feta cheese and, and, and um, write and not sort of think about a lot of the problems in the United States. But the week that, or a few, 10 days after I arrived, um, this, this person was killed by a, by a mob and uh, four police officers were involved. Um, and it was pretty close to where I was working at the time. And, and I heard sort of rumors about it and it, it mirrored a lot of, um, it mirrored for me a lot of Dynamics of what happens in the United States in these cases, police killings in Greece and Europe are incredibly rare. you know the previous one had happened fifteen years before um as opposed to you know three times a day in the United States. But what really mirrored it was that there was a whole narrative cycle that came out before they knew there was video, and then the video changed, and it was very, very similar to. Um, actually I say Rodney King, the first one that was the first not a killing at the time, but a beating where you can see like one narrative and then a couple of days yeah. later, a completely yeah. different narrative. I had a I taught a class where I had the students read the police report that was written. I'd never read it until that class in its entirety. And it's so like it's such an interesting primary document. Um, and so um, and the person who was killed was, you know, not just queer, but he was kind of the most prominent HIV activist in the country. And he really modeled, um, and I've gotten, I've gotten to write about, it and I've gotten to know his family and a lot of his friends. And in his short life of just thirty three years, he really modeled so many things that, um, in, in practice, without having uh, much of a formal education, like he really lived intersectionality. His activism was around HIV. He's, he's widely seen as the first person ever talked about being HIV positive without being outed in media, um, and, and and on social media in Greece. Um, and he was very intersectional in that he was quite involved with the, the migrant movement in Greece. And, um, you know, as we've seen with, with great horror, most recently, you know, this summer, Greece is very much the, the front line, um, for how Europe is displaced and isolated and moved its borders to being funneled into a very dangerous place and that's the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean. Um, And so Greece ends up being a place where a lot of this is dealt with. But Zach was incredibly um, uh, active in working for sex workers and working for LGBT rights and HIV, but also understanding how related all of these things are to the the migrant. um, I won't say the migrant crisis, the crisis that migrants are being subjected to. Um, So he was in, in... incredibly inspirational to me. So is Alice Wong. And I would say more broadly, the disability rights movement has is, is been such a great teacher to me. And I and I think at this moment, it's really, they're inspiring, but it's really disappointing to see how few left, leftists, or even liberal organizations are, having, are taking any lessons from COVID. I feel like liberals are actively trying to memory hole everything that happened from COVID. Um, so as to not Think about it all. It's like it feels that at times, you know, as we're recording, Biden's wife uh, just got over having COVID, and he's not wearing his mask, and he's making these these jokes about not wearing his mask um, in a way that liberals would have been outraged about uh, had Trump done it. You know, <laughs> if you flip the script, um, and yet it's just become very much part of sort of liberal politics. And the socialism conference I was glad had very good masking policies. Uh, and food was served outside and it and, and was great. But it's the only thing I've seen. Like, I don't think the DSA conference did. I see these endless public health conferences you know, and not having any. And the CDC, of course, they, you know, infamously had their outbreak. Uh, and I feel like the only place that that these politics are being taken seriously is the disability rights community, which is inspirational because it's, it's anti-capitalist in many ways and also is a really strong they're offering a really strong roadmap of things that have to happen like we could really yeah. we could think about the need for clean air right now as a politics that that could guide the world because outside we're choking from smoke inside we're we're choking from smoke and also exposed to RSV and COVID and and this fall and winter and the northern hemisphere influenza so i'm very very inspired by the disability rights community and i think that it's also i'm of course very proud and inspired by many Black activists, particularly the ones who are working against Cop City right now uh, under very, very dangerous circumstances. But a lot of Black politics has been co-opted in this country. And I I'm, I'm I think endlessly about the role of the Black police officer and the Black cop, um, including in Atlanta, where you have this, this Black mayor who's using every lever <laughs> to sort of thwart democracy. Um and who will talk as if you know the constituents are who are going to be most affected in organizing are, are not black, and so much of black politics and and many kinds of more broad identity politics have been co opted. Not not that there aren't people practicing them in their their rich tradition, um, but disability politics right now is probably the area that I'm most inspired um, with how to address a lot of the the issues that we're facing right now.
0: Stephen, we were so blown away by your book and thank you so much for coming to talk with us. It was it was really such a pleasure.
1: Thank you. I'm I'm incredibly touched by your kind words, by this conversation. I've learned so much from this podcast um, and you are two of the people who I most admire uh, intellectually, academically, uh, and also ethically and the ways that you think about Really important things, and the just total generosity of spirit you have um with what you know and I aspire to be the kind of publicly intellectual thinker that the two of you are, and I talk about you often as role models who are incredibly smart um and are always bringing everyone along with you and <laughs> we are often there are many many people um in the public sphere who want to lord over what they what they know that other people don't know and the two of you are just such a model of welcoming and bringing people along with you and so thank you for that gift that you give to the community and to me
2: that those healings are so reciprocal stephen i can't tell you how much i'm 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 a little i i I, i'm for but but yeah
0: (laughs) thank you so (laughs) much that really means it means the world coming from you This has been an episode of Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin, and today I was joined by Patrick Blanchfield and Stephen Thrasher. This podcast is produced by Dan Yowell. Theme music by Formal Chicken.